You're listening to episode 48 of season 13 of the GNU World Order. Hey everybody, this is Klaatu. In this episode, I have listener feedback to talk about. I have the you section of the user bin section of the Linux package in Slackware. Of course, as I've said several times now, but if this is your first episode, this will be news to you. Your Linux distribution comes with a lot of applications on it, and a lot of them you don't even know are there. This is solving that issue. I'm not going to say it's a problem, because it's not a problem. A lot of these applications we don't use directly or at all, but they're still there, and you might find a use for it if you know that it is there. And after listening to all of the GNU World Order episodes, you will know each and every one of them, at least as insofar as they come on Slackware, which is a pretty big collection. Let's get started with listener feedback, though. This one's from Michael. Michael says, I only recently started listening, around 1330, but wish I had discovered this show years ago. Thank you, Michael. Uh, he says, first things first, you asked about Wooby a few e- episodes ago. I'd just like to add that I had known about it when I was w- when it was a thing and tried it to tried it on one of my PCs, but I disliked having the Windows portion there at all and thought it odd seeing the uninstaller for a different OS in appwiz.cpl. This was probably around Ubuntu 8.04 or 8.10. That's great information to have. Thank you, Michael. Uh, this sounds interesting to me, but I don't... Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't actually elucidate a whole lot for me personally. It may elucidate things for other people who have had experience with Windows. I don't know what appwiz.cpl is. I looked it up on the internet. It appears to be some kind of control panel, CPL, control panel maybe, for Windows. I don't know if it's an additional thing or if it's just built in. Um, I just don't know what that is. So it sounds to me, though, like there's maybe a launcher for Ubuntu within your actual Windows install. So you, you boot into Windows maybe, and then you click a launcher for Ubuntu and maybe it reboots your computer, or maybe, I don't know, yeah, see, I don't know, I just, I cannot wrap my mind around how this sort of things, things work, that this thing works. Maybe what I should do is download one of those developer copies of Windows, install it on a um, virtual machine, or well, maybe on, on hardware, on a spare drive or something, and then uh, boot into that, and then get the the new Wubi version, the the one, the fork of Wubi that still exists, and, and try it out for myself, and then I would know for sure what it, what what how that behaves. I just don't know if that's really worth it because, as Michael is saying, it's kind of weird having the Windows portion in the first place. And frankly, that's largely how I feel about the whole concept of dual booting. Like I want to, I want to be able to say to the world that dual booting is great and that it's a great option and all that other stuff. And I know that it kind of is, and I mean. I know that because I've used it. I mean, that it has been a a thing that I've been able to do, not with not with anything closed source. Interestingly, I, I I dual booted Slackware and something else. Sometimes you know, originally it was Ubuntu, and then it was Fedora, and then a couple of things. So I mean, I I did that. I, I took advantage of that, but in practice, it never really did a whole lot for me. For instance, I would always find myself defaulting to one or the other. Um, the The fact that they were two separate OSs, in a weird way, made it 
less likely for me to use both because inevitably you would boot into one and all your stuff would be there and then you'd boot into the other and all your stuff is not there and you'd think well I really wanted to to work on such and such a file or I wanted that those the bookmarks from that browser um or the you know the the history from that browser you know and it was just like I don't know it's um it was too much like a portable OS I guess you know that 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 you never used it was just never felt like home so I don't know dual booting to me seems not great um I know however that practically like pragmatically it can actually be a great thing so i wouldn't want dual booting to go away but at the same time i can't i cannot in good conscience recommend it to most people not really okay anyway michael has lots of interesting things to say specifically he has a linux origin story this is great someone actually reminded me uh, in mastodon actually that Technically, I'm poaching for Hacker Public from Hacker Public Radio because there is a Hacker Public Radio series called like My Linux Origin Story or or How I Found Linux or something like that, a little mini series you know that people contribute to, and um, so technically speaking, I am poaching from Hacker Public Radio, which of course I never want to do, except that I guess technically I you could say that I poach from it every time I record a GNU World Order episode because this could be Hacker Public Radio content. Anyway, let's not get into the weeds on that one. Let us instead talk about Michael's Linux origin story. So it says, It all started when my father gave me a PC, I was probably 10, and gave me a hard time about purchasing an MS Office subscription. So I searched for free alternatives and stumbled upon OpenOffice. I also used software like Pigeon and Firefox regularly. It fascinated me that there was a free, as in beer, was my only thought at the time, alternative to a paid software that was very similar in feature set. This led me to a quest of a computer of only free software, but this was before I fully understood that there were different operating systems. I eventually stumbled upon the true free software movement and found a chat room of Linux users that encouraged me to give Ubuntu 704, maybe, a try. I installed it side-by-side -side with Windows, maybe 2000-ish, and quickly grew to love it. A few years later, I got a new computer and installed Ubuntu on it right away. I installed Debian onto my old PC and used it as a web server, learning about port forwarding, installing software, the LAMP stack, SSH, and Bash. I've never looked back since switching to Linux, minus a brief fling with a Hackintosh as I was curious about the Apple Unix environment, and I'm now an Arch user with a handful of Debian servers around my house, actually a bunch of Proxmox VMs. And I'm still a, or am a full-time web developer. It was my New Year's resolution this year to rid myself of Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, and the like. Ridding myself of Microsoft and Facebook was easy because I never used their services to begin with. Apple was moderately difficult but doable as I had to extract all my information from iCloud. Passwords were the hardest. It required an Apple strip an Apple script script. Amazon's only service that I use is the store itself and weaning off of Amazon's store is part of my upcoming New Year's resolution. I now use NextCloud, self-hosted Firefox sync server, hmm, that's interesting, uh, Wallabag, Jellyfin, and a handful of other self-hosted software. I sprinkle in a few privacy-friendly services that I use for my core infrastructure that cannot reasonably be self-hosted, such as Tutanota for email, my entire home network is FOSS software, except for my Nintendo Switch. 
isolated to its own VLAN and my mobile uh, and my mobile device, see below. My biggest trouble, I think this is below. My biggest trouble has been Google. I don't use any of their services except the Play Store and Android by extension. I've tried Google Free Android, Lineage, FDroid, MicroG, etc., and it was great, but the lack of proper maps and a few evil apps that I unfortunately rely on, like Snapchat, demanding safety net, Google's phone integrity check, to work made this. The mobile world is inherently closed source, and I'm looking forward to PinePhone and the Librem 5 to hopefully shed a glimmer of hope on this. That leads me to a question for you and possibly your listeners. What has your journey with FOSS on mobile been? What sacrifices do you make? What cool recommendations do you have, etc.? I personally love the AntennaPod podcast app and web apps for making sandboxed shortcuts to mobile websites that you can put onto your home screen like uh, like apps. KDE Connect has a uh, GNOME integration, GS Connect, is also fantastic. That's from Michael. Great points. I could go on and on and on about everything that he talked about. I don't want to take the whole episode doing that, so I'm going to try to focus on his direct question primarily, which is, what do you do about using or trying to get use open source on a mobile platform, which inherently appears to be closed? So I would I would say to that 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 there's a series or a uh, an array of choices and trade-offs that you have to make because obviously there are open source alternatives right now and and Michael himself mentioned them Lineage OS MicroG I guess I, I've never I had actually not heard of MicroG there's another one E dot Foundation go to E dot Foundation it is a fork I think of Lineage and uh, it's it's by the guy who started Mandriva or rather Mandrake I think it is so pretty pretty good team behind it, I would imagine, with, with that as its CEO. It, it's very centralized around Europe right now. It doesn't ship to America. It doesn't ship certainly to New Zealand, but that would be something to look into, I think. I think the the big problem with open source on mobile is that uh, th- there's a lot of hardware dependencies. It's fairly trivial to locate an open source operating system for a mobile device. It's a lot less simple to find one that installs on your hardware. And that's a travesty, I think. I mean, think about right now, today. You have pretty much any computer you can locate in a rubbish bin or in a store or in the attic or whatever, going back to a certain a certain time, of course. But but at least certainly 15, 20 years, and you can basically guarantee that Linux will will install onto it, or at least NetBSD, right? I mean, famously. So there's an option. You have your open source option. On a phone, it's a lot. There's there's no such guarantee, and even I mean, I've done this myself. I have I have had to select a phone for an employer to purchase for me. And I would look at the phones, and then I would try to cross-reference it with what was available out there on the open-source software um, sites, like Lineage OS and and uh, what w- the the one that came before Lineage that sort of crumbled and fell apart, you know. And I would look at the list, and I would try to cross-reference, and there'd be some some slight ch- difference in the number, and so I'd think, well, it's probably close enough, and I'd get the phone, and then I'd 
try to download the ROM for it, and oop, guess what? That wasn't the right one. The little A behind the number meant that it was actually a completely different chipset and completely different architecture, and it just wouldn't work. And no developer had that phone, so they don't have a, a ROM for it, or whatever. So it, it's very, very complex. It's very difficult. Now, in the past, I have had a Firefox OS phone. I got one from Mozilla. Well, I got one from someone who went to Mozilla Conference, and it was a fantastic little phone. I really enjoyed it. I still tech, I, I still have it. It's just not being developed anymore. It was great, and it was open source, and it was it was sublime. It was wonderful. I've heard from developers that developing for that phone wasn't necessarily great or sublime, but the phone itself and the knowledge that, hey, I'm running an open source stack on this device, that's great. So now you have your your your, your option of either of having your your phone that may not be completely open source. I mean, Android is relatively open source, but you have, so you have that, but on top of that, what you're really wanting to do is you're trying to run uh, services that are not proprietary. So that, I mean, obviously F-Droid, but Michael already mentioned that. So I think that the, the choice here is, it, it's almost a cascading choice where you have to you have to manage to get a phone that can have an open source ROM flashed onto it, and and that's a matter of money and it's a matter of uh, of, of features. You know, maybe one phone doesn't have the feature that you that 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 you that, that spending money on a uh, on a device would 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 prompt you to to actually spend the money for. Otherwise, you maybe you wouldn't want that phone and so on. So there's all these sort of conditions that have to happen for you to end up with a piece of hardware. And if if those conditions led you towards the piece of hardware that someone has developed a ROM for, then brilliant, you can do that. I mean, short of you developing your own ROM for that, but that may be outside of your skill set. So it's cool if you get one that wins the lottery of open source. That's neat. If not, well, okay, then that's a pity, but I mean, that's that's one of those trade-offs that we just, I mean, in real life, because we don't just get to choose any piece of hardware that we want, uh, I mean, unless you're super rich, but then you're not worried about all of this, right? You, you can just, you can just make sure you have an open source phone. You can call up a developer from Lineage or from e.foundation or whatever and, and order something custom. So we're, we're assuming we're below that realm and we're saying that you 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 play a lottery and you get a piece of hardware and maybe that hardware works with open source and maybe it doesn't we don't know it's the the marketplace is so divided and scattered that there's no way to sort of guarantee that now if you either way i guess there are still those services out there that you may or may not want to use and i think as usual, that's a trade-off. You have to make the choice of whether that that non-free or common or or open service is essential to to you as a person. And if it is, then you're going to use it. And if it is not, then you're not going to use it. And maybe to mitigate the the risk of using it, you'll use a a, a false identity or a, a fake 
a fake account. I mean, f fake enough for for Google, right? Because, I mean, in order to sign into your Android, you need a Gmail account. So in other words, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the issue of open source on mobile hardware is a matter, for me at least, from my perspective, of mitigation. It's, it's not something that you necessarily have full control over because the marketplace does not afford you that luxury. And frankly, that annoys me. It annoys me that the the marketplace controls how people uh, can interact with technology. But unfortunately, that's kind of a reality. We're not going to... You're not going to go into your woodshed and build your own custom mobile phone. The, the, the fact that we're using really advanced technology implies that there is some driving force behind it that that creates it and therefore ultimately controls how it's distributed and that's a pretty unsettling realization and with computers i have often been kind of blissfully pleased with the fact that because computers have such a long and sordid history we have we have plenty of spares lying around and if you don't want to become a part of the computer industry machine, you don't have to. And I haven't been for years. I haven't bought a new computer in ages. Well, that's not entirely true. I've, I've bought parts for, for the computer, my workstation that I built um, six years ago or whatever it's been. But in terms of like laptops and stuff, I've, I've not, I don't buy used, I don't buy new laptops. I buy used laptops, or I don't buy them at all. I, I rescue them. So th there's this kind of sort of satisfaction and and um, relief by the fact that that I I don't have to subject myself directly anyway to the kind of planned obsolescence schemes of of computer manufacturers. I mean that's a tenuous a tenuous thing though. I'm still actively involved in that market i'm just on the very 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 back end of it sort of getting the the crumbs off of the tables of others and and i'm fine with that i'm happy with that cell phones are a little bit less um prolific i think it it's, it seems to be very difficult to find cell phones that that are that are discarded which is bizarre because at the same time I all I ever hear about from people is how they've just updated their phone you know a year after they've gotten their previous phone and I never understand that I don't know where those cell phones go I honestly don't I guess they go into a drawer in their uh, in their bedside table or something because I I don't know where they are but even then I mean if it is an old one I mean what are you gonna do you know the the again the software is is kind of difficult to maintain on on these things and because they're they're naturally assumed to be networked devices that they require a lot of updates for security and stuff so it's tough is what i'm trying to say and i think the the answer ultimately is not to have a mobile phone okay so if you want a mobile phone then the answer is to use the open source options that are available to you and be okay with the fact that parts of that open the, uh, parts of that phone are are is part of the the appliance it's part of the the firmware as it were to that device because there's just not necessarily a way around that
Now, I don't know if that actually answers Michael's question, but then again, this isn't an Android show. This is a GNU Linux AUG cast. This is GNU World Order. So this is not an Android cast. So I'm, I, what I, I guess what I'm really trying to say in the end is that I'm the wrong person to ask, Michael. Uh, maybe listeners, some of my listeners may have tips for you, but in terms of, of mobile platform, I honestly tend to avoid them because I don't like touch screens. I don't think that that encourages productivity. In fact, I think it actually encourages consumption because it's just so much darn trouble to type three sentences without resorting to just an emoji because you can't be bothered to use a big word because it's too difficult to type it. So I, I don't I don't think that touchscreens are effective. I think that so, uh, that mobile phones are sort of a grand conspiracy by whatever, pick, take your pick, um, so that people stop actually producing as much and start consuming more. So I will not use a mobile phone with a touchscreen in real life. Now at work, that's a completely different story. I do have a mobile phone. My job sent it to me, paid it, they pay for it. And it's it's the thing that I am connected to the internet with, in case of of failure elsewhere. So that's part of the work deal. It is maintained by my IT the IT department at my at my workplace. I don't I don't do anything with that phone in terms of personalizing it or or putting personal data onto it other than employee related data. So that's that's my connection with the mobile world which is is very scarce i i I really i'm not heavily involved in the mobile scene at all so i don't know what the the best course of action is to find an open source solution for non-open services that exist online and that are frankly a problem on or off mobile i mean if you want a map then you're kind of bound to a google map no matter what your where how you're accessing it so I don't know. Maybe some of my listeners will have better answers, but uh, and I'm I'm happy to relay any kind of suggestion to Michael on the show or off the show if it gets to be too much. Because as I say, this isn't a mobile platform show, and I don't want to concentrate too much on that. There's a lot more to be said about Michael's email though, because he brings up some really really great points. I mean, some other really really great points. Um, but I'm not going to do that because I've already talked for like I don't know 18 minutes about about his about his one question. Um, I, I am going to address the whole Nintendo Switch side of things. I've addressed it before in the past, but I don't know if I quite got it on the on the nose. So I, I think I'm going to address it again at some point in a broader scope as well. That will be in the future. Right now we're going to have a cup of coffee, and then we're going to move on to Util Linux. <laughs> Linux, and the command that we are going to talk about first is the ul command. Ever heard of it? Probably not. This is uh, this is a strange one, and I'm assuming it's got a lot to do with documentation concerns. But I I had never heard of it before. 
don't exactly know who uses it for what, but if we do a man ul, there are four options. It says that it reads the named file or standard input and translates occurrences of underscores to the sequence which indicates underlining for the terminal in use, as specified by the environment variable term. So in other words, this takes something that has been, uh, I'll say, encoded to to tell the terminal, hey, if you underline words, then underline this word. I played around with this command for, it must have been an hour, and could not figure it out for the life of me. Just, I mean, I was doing what I thought the man page was telling me to do. It just was not working. And then I finally sort of reread the bugs section in the man page, bugs. And it says, inrof usually outputs a series of backspaces and underlines intermixed with the text to indicate underlining. No attempt is made to optimize the backward motion. Okay, so turns out that the bug in that section is just the last sentence. The first sentence is not part of the bug. That was for context. Not very good context because it's not very clear as to what it means, but it's for context. What it's actually trying to say, it's actually trying to tell us, sort of, in a, in a sort of rough way, how to how to do the sequence that we need for ul to understand i don't know why they didn't just put an example in the in the man page the man page isn't that long it it is um let's see man would this work man uh ul and then t and then wc dash l so it's 66 lines that's i don't know if that's even it's 290 words there you go um, so, I mean, they could have put an example in there. They did not, but they this bugs section is actually revealing it. So the first thing I tried was echo, quote, underscore, hello, underscore, quote, pipe that through UL. That did not work. That was, that was sort of the obvious, hope this works, it would make sense to work, that sort of thing. That's not how you do it. So surrounding the word hello in underscores does not, is not the way. So then there's this um, there's this indicated option. Underlining is indicated by a separate line containing appropriate dashes. That's the dash character. This is useful when you want to look at the underlining, which is which is present in an inrof output stream on a CRT terminal. Now I don't really know what that means, so I thought, okay, well instead of underscores, I'll try dashes. That didn't work either. So anyway. This bug, this bug message is telling you that the, the, the sequence that represents underlines is a backspace and um, underscore, it says underlines, underscore intermixed. That in, in this case, what's the, what they're saying is that that must appear after each character within a string that you want underlined. That probably made no sense. It made more sense than the bugs explanation, but here's an example. Echo, quote, and then what we're going to do is control V and then control H to produce a caret uh, H character, which, as you probably know, means a backspace in terminal control character language. So you may have seen that, like people sometimes write that in as a joke, you know, they'll they'll... They'll write, I really um, love 
windows and then after the love they'll put under uh caret h caret h caret h caret h and then retype linux so it's it's as if the or hate rather whatever um whatever my example was it's it's there it's the way that they kind of do a strike through in geek speak so anyway um control v control h that produces a visual backspace in your terminal and then or in most terminals i've tried it in uh urxvt which um i wouldn't say is my default terminal but it's it's one of my default terminals that's for sure uh and console i didn't try it in gnome terminal at work because i i'm not at work um so control h underscore and then we'll do an h like an actual h and then we'll do a control v h underscore e control v h oh did i forget yeah, no underscore and then l and then i'm not going to do that again so i'll just do a bunch of um I'll, i'm going to do a alt b to go back control f to go forward control k to copy or to cut rather control y to paste or to yank really uh and then i think i don't i feel like we don't actually need yeah no we do we need a control h underscore after the o i think we actually don't need the control h in front of the h is is what we is where i went wrong either way what i have right now is h caret h underscore e caret h underscore l caret h underscore l caret h underscore o caret h underscore and again those caret h's aren't just you can't just type caret h you can't do that it has to be control v to sort of get yourself into a different mode and then control h for it to visually represent that control h you you can do that with other things too you control v and then control l you get a uh, caret l and so on but for this all we need is the control h and the underscore that combination is going to represent and you do that after every character you want underlined now I'll close the quotes and then i'll do a pipe and then do ul and it returns the word hello completely underlined that's how you do it that's the ul command hope that helped um there's there there are four options there's help there's version and then there's terminal so that you can override the variable the environment variable term with the specified terminal type and there is a dash i or a dash dash indicated which i read before i don't know what it means i don't know the use and i'm not going to try to figure it out because this is a very very uh obscure command i don't know who uses it for what uh, and i'm not going to dedicate a whole lot of time to it here's another one we're not going to actually dedicate a whole lot of time to which is unshare i've talked about unshare already unshare runs a program under a different namespace or rather with a namespace that is that has been unshared from its parent so you can go back a couple of episodes to learn about namespaces on linux it's an important topic you should you should actually kind of you, you if you have not heard that ep episode you honestly might want to go listen to it because it's um it is a a, a thing that you probably want to know it is episode 1339 
it was talking about the nsinter command, which is the namespace inter command, and I think arguably it ended up being more about the unshare command than the nsinter command, but the two are tightly bound because um, they they both control the, the or they both affect the namespace of a certain process. And it is the concept of namespaces, as I mentioned in 1339, that enables things like containers to even exist. It, so it's a big, big deal. And if you're going into systems administration or DevOps or anything of that nature, this is the kind of thing you're going to want to be familiar with. Okay, now we're going to talk about UTEMP dump. You know, dear listener, what UTEMP is. Uh, because we've talked about it before. I think we were talking about it when we were talking about maybe the the W command, just the letter W. Um, I, I think that was what it was. If not, it was something related. Could have been maybe um, maybe it was who, maybe the who command. I, I don't really remember the specific command, but we talked about it. Utemp. It is the um, it is the system. It is the uh, the file which allows you to learn who is currently using the system. That is uh, information that you get when you type in uh, W, I think. Let's, let's look at that, because that's uh, it might be actually from... No, yeah, that that's, that's it, UTEMP. So the W command tells you, or, or kind of gives you the results of UTEMP. UTEMP dump, according to the man page, is um, the it is a simple program to dump UTEMP and WTEMP files in raw format so they can be examined. UTEMP dump reads from standard in unless a file name is provided. So you kind of have to know where the UTEMP file exists on your system. I don't off the top of my head know where that is. So if I do a man W and go to the bottom of the man page, it tells me that it may be in var run utemp. So if I do a utemp uh, dump and then do a var run utemp, I get all the information that I would normally see from uh, W, but in a, a pretty raw format. And when they say raw, they don't mean, um, you know, like a raw, like in video codecs, there's a raw, that there's raw data that that hasn't been really encoded into something else that's not what they're talking about they're just talking about it's it's um it's kind of a, a raw looking log file it's, it hasn't been parsed to look pretty for you so um looking at it it's 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 actually not the worst thing in the world it's just not the most concise thing in the world there are about five different options for that there's help and version as you might expect and then there's a cool one called um dash f or dash dash follow uh, which outputs appended data as the file grows. Um, that's kind of cool. So you can watch the thing, the 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 logins as they as they occur. So that's that is kind of neat, actually. And I don't I don't think there's such an option for W. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be such an option for W, and um, I'm not seeing one for who either so yeah that's kind of a cool i would say that's probably the killer feature of utemp dump i'm gonna just i'm gonna i'm gonna assert that right here is that the dash f dash dash follow option is kind of the the reason for utemp dump 
being something to maybe actually consider using from time to time. I mean, obviously you would want to sort of use that on a system where you have other users. Or I guess you could use it if you're paranoid that someone else is logging in without you knowing it. Maybe that would be something that you could do. I don't know. But um, dash dash follow is pretty neat. Um, dash dash output or dash o writes the command output to a file instead of dumping it to your standard output. Dash dash reverse or dash r which is undump, that is write back edited log information into utemp or wtemp files. I, I, I don't see any possible way for that to be abused at all, so I'm sure it's fine that that's there. Now obviously you would have to have permissions to do that sort of thing. Not a big deal, just really interesting that that exists. But I mean, why wouldn't it exist, honestly? I mean, that's, why not? It's it's a text file on on in, in var log like that's not that big of a deal or what where was it it was in var var run sorry uh, and then yeah version and help and that's it so that's um that's utemp dump next up is uuid gen guess what that does if you guessed it generates a uuid then you are correct what is a uuid anyway well it's a universally unique identifier that is uuid and uh, the uuid gen command uses the lib uuid library to generate a a unique uh, a universally unique id the new uuid generated by this can reasonably be considered unique among all uuids created on the local system and among uuids created on other systems in the past and in the future that's really really cool i don't know anything about this sort of thing to know whether that's a, a lofty claim or totally reasonable but it's a pretty long string and you figure ipv6 is pretty pretty it's a pretty big number of um of things so it, it seems like seems like this could be could be genuinely unique if you if you do this command if you try it you U ID gen. It, it does return a a string. It is uh let's see if we can divine how many characters it is. It's thirty-seven characters long, but that's including the dashes. And I guess it's unique because it says it is. I, I don't have any way to prove it or to check it, but certainly it must be handy to have as your source of UUIDs. And there are a couple of things on your system that use UUIDs. One of them, notably, could be a hard drive or hard drive partition. I mean, not necessarily, but UEFI tends to uh, designate things, as far as I know, as U by, by UUID. There is a UUID gen and then dash dash random option to generate a random-based UUID. This method creates a UUID consisting mostly of random bits. It requires that the operating system have a high-quality random number generator, such as slash dev slash random. Okay, cool. So I'm getting another unique string back. Again, not, not really a way to prove that that's at all unique. Uh, but you could do a also UUID gen dash dash time, or just dash t, and that generates time-based UUID. This method creates a UUID based on the system clock plus the system's Ethernet hardware address, if present. 
that seems pretty handy to me because especially on your local system i mean realistically you don't i mean like randomness in a in a local system uh, um where security and encryption is not the concern it's just literally you just want to ensure that you have a a random value again on a local system uh, assuming that your clock is correct you have a source of random values because you you can always know that provided anytime you generate a new one waits at least a millisecond before before calculations then then you know that you're going to come up with something different so that that seems useful just for the sort of the local concerns and that's it those are all the u sec the the u um, applications commands in the util linux slash user slash bin uh, directory. I said that wrong, but you get the idea. That's all of them. They weren't super exciting. Some of them could be useful. I think the UUID Gen 1 is probably one of the the most useful ones, and then the UTIMP dump, I think, could theoretically in certain situations be useful. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this overview of Util Linux's U commands that it keeps in the user bin and uh thanks for listening i'll talk to you next week listening to the GNU World Order AugCast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as AugCast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. the bizarre, the strange, and the occult incantations of the Jellyhead generation.